this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 248, recording on Thursday, February 15th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. Two away from 250. We are. We've done like, so many ask conf- us anything. I'm not sure there's anything left people could ask us. <laughs> yeah, we're, I'm making, I'm having a bingo board. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Made. Um, people can ask us things if they want. Like, I don't know that we have enough to fill a whole episode, but if you have questions, you can shoot them to us at podcast at bookriot.com. And sure. That's what I was saying. Like yeah. you can do it anytime, but we don't, we don't have to like, um, put on, put on our fancy dress. To take right. on, to, uh, well, I am expecting confetti to drop from the ceiling when I, no. you know, click close after we have the <laughs> the two hundred and fiftieth episode in the can. Uh, I, I need some sort of fanfare to appear in my home office here. Maybe maybe Millie can do a special bark or something. Yeah, because we're we're coming up on five years. I mean, I it's, I guess that's the one. It's five years May. Is mm-hmm. that right? That, Gosh, how can it be? That, that seems long? impossible. That's just bananas. My my <laughs> so recollection of it now, and some of it is just when we started. Like we felt like we'd been doing the company for a while when we started, but we hadn't really. No, I mean, really, it had been two like years. Year, yeah, not even like a year and a half. A year and a half. Um, so I never can think of it for that long. But anyway, thank you. You know, we got a lot of great feedback. Um, we're going to talk about some more follow up uh, about the School Library Journal slash uh, piece by Ann Ersu on Medium, um, where there's attach some names by like real publishing world consequences. So we're not going to delve into the particular behaviors to behaviors because a, if you want to read about them, you can B, we don't really want to talk about them all that much in detail and see, you know, there's some people out there that it's going to be very close to home and that's not what this show is about. But Rebecca, why don't you tell me about a sponsor? We'll get into the show. Yeah, our first sponsor this week is Mr. Tender's Girl by Carter Wilson. Um, Alice Hill was only 14 when she was viciously stabbed by two of her classmates and left to die. Her friends told authorities that Alice was supposed to be a sacrifice for a man called Mr. Tender. But that's insane. Mr. Tender isn't even real. He's just a sinister character in a series of popular graphic novels, isn't he? Over a decade later, Alice is trying to move on, but someone is watching her. They know more about Alice than any stranger could. Her scars, her fears, and the secrets that she keeps locked away. She can try to escape her past, but the threat of Mr. Tender is never far behind. This is inspired by the Slenderman crime, and it's a gripping thriller that plunges you into a world of haunting memories and unseen threats, which will leave you guessing until the harrowing end. So fans for are good for fans of psychological thrillers like... Um, Karen Slaughter, Ruth Ware, and Fiona Barton. Carter Wilson uh, was highly influenced by Alfred Hitchcock and the combination of an unreliable narrator, haunting memories, and a whole host of unseen threats makes this a must read for fans of edgy suspense. So again, it's Mr. Tender's Girl, and it's tender like, I feel tender, not like the app tender, (laughs) T-E-N-D-E-R. Different book. Yeah, different book. (laughs) These are distinctions we have to make now Mm, in the modern world. mm -hmm. Uh, Mr. Tender's Girl by Carter Wilson. You can find it wherever books are sold or click the link in the show notes. Thanks to them for sponsoring. (laughs) All right. Well, um, we'll spend a few minutes on this just to, to update you guys if you haven't seen on the repercussions of um, a lot of the stories we talked about last week. This is reported in the New York Times. So two of the names that were mentioned repeatedly and with some detail, and again, I have to admit, I looked away after a while. I didn't keep up mm-hmm. with all the comments happening on the school library journal reports. I didn't realize until I was putting the show notes together, this is an aside, um, that the article that started, the comments started dropping on last week is actually a January 8th article. Oh, I didn't notice that either. For some reason, and I didn't, I didn't really follow like the beautiful mind strings against the wall of the whatever to like try to connect all the docs <laughs> of like how people got from this to this. Because I was looking for the comment thread to put in the post, and I'm like, okay, so I was like googling, I'm looking for like what is going on, and the only one I could find was from January, and I was like, that's the wrong one, and finally I realized I was being an idiot, and it was the right one. But 
Um, such are the pathways of these conversations that they're going back in time on the internet, which is like basically like getting into DeLorean. It's so hard. That, mm-hmm. That's how strong the desire is and the attention and passion and outrage and pain that um, we'll go to a two-month-old two post in a comment <laughs> thread to have, to have this stuff come out. So anyway, this is reported in the New York Times. So two of the names, we're only mentioning these two names because there's consequences reported by big um, publications that have done their homework, that people have officially commented it. So the first one we're going to mention is James Dashner has been dropped by his literary agent. Um, James Dashner, if you don't know by name, you know because he wrote the Maze Runner series, which has turned into a m- modestly successful mm-hmm. film franchise. Um, yeah, it's a, it's not like a Hunger Games big deal, but it's a deal. But it also didn't, the third one didn't get direct to TV like Divergent did, so it's like somewhere in the middle. Um, basically, his literary agency dropped him. Uh, let's see, I'm trying to say the name. Uh, Michael Borat. B-O-U-R-R-E-T. Um, and his quote, I think, is interesting to say. I couldn't in good conscience continue working with James, and I let him go. Yesterday, um, we, earlier this week, the head of the Society for Children's Books Writers and Illustrators told the AP that Asher had been expelled earlier, but no one knew. Oh, wait, no. Now we're mixing up two stories, because Dashner... James Dashner and Jay Asher. Are oh, both. I'm sorry. Yes, this is included in the story about Dashner. <laughs> yeah. So Jay Asher also was dropped by his agency. So we'll just throw mm-hmm. that in there. Um, yeah, and he's the author agent, of 13 Reasons Why. Which was um, best known now as that uh, Netflix series, mm-hmm. um, which was had a hot minute of being in the spotlight, as all Netflix series seem to do. Um, he was dropped earlier, no one knew, which I think there's a story there. I don't know what it mm-hmm. is how that came out. A spokeswoman for Asher disputes whether he was kicked out, but confirmed Wednesday that his agent had dropped him. So basically, James Dashner and Jay Asher um, both got dropped by their agencies. I don't know enough, maybe you do, Rebecca, or someone, a birdies out there do, about contracts with agents. Like, how hard is this to do? Can, can an, what consequences does an agent face legally or otherwise from drop? Do they get, does say the agent get royalties from the Maze Runner? Because that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know. Is it is it easier than Random House dropping Jay Ash? Uh, sorry, Dashner, which is the publisher of the. I don't know if it's a Maze Runner. Yes, um, yes, and then he's also apparently working on a book for adults called The Waking. Um, I don't know if that's an ironical title. It certainly seems interesting at the moment. <laughs> um, but so anyway, the, there's dominoes falling in mm-hmm. the consequence world writ large for publishing. Yeah, and this is pretty similar to some of the consequences that we first saw around the Me Too movement that happened in the film industry Mm -hmm. first. Um, Some of the early responses to actors losing their representation. And then uh, Harvey Weinstein being the biggest example, you know, that his publisher first um, removed his removed his imprint and then they had reassessed what they were going to do with um, books under contract in that imprint, how they were going to handle all of those deals. So I think the next question here is like, obviously this is a big consequence for an author to lose representation because your representation by your agent is how you go get a book deal. And if you've been dropped by your agent for something like this, um, chances are not good that you could represent yourself into a, a a new deal. This is a PR risk now for a publishing house. So what does Random House, Penguin Random House, do about um, Jay, not not Jay Asher, about James Dashner's books that they already own and have published and continue to make money off of? Like, will they do ongoing publicity for those? Mm. Who knows? Um, What do they do about the next book he publishes that, or the next book he wants to publish that they could stand to make a lot of money on because of his name and also because I think, you know, the average reader who like wanders into a Barnes and Noble is not going to know this about him. So there's some real, um, I think, difficult ethical and moral questions for the folks at the level of, do we continue to publish these books and make money off of them under the not great assumption, accurate, but not awesome, that um, that the general public won't know that these guys have been accused of these creepy things and dropped by their agents. Um, like You could still continue to profit off of it, but whether you yeah. should is a completely different question. And so it'll be really interesting to see what yeah. the next level of that is. Like Losing your agent is great. Never being able to get a book deal, even better. Yeah, I, it's really tough. I mean, probably something like The Maze Runner, which is one of the rare giant film franchise. Well, I don't know if it's rare, but 
it's different than, say, Harry Potter or even Hunger Games where a much lower percentage of people probably know the name of the author of The Maze Runner than know the name of the author of mm-hmm. Hunger Games. So that, that book sort of has a life of its own outside of Dashner. Right. So where you, I think your point is well taken, but there's sort of a regression to the mean of pop culture about The mm-hmm. Maze Runner, which I think you probably still have to be pretty plugged in to know this about James Dashner. You don't have to be that plugged into the film industry as we ourselves are not to know about Harvey Weinstein and some of these other people. Yeah, and you know, I was thinking about it after last week's show and we were talking about Aziz Ansari that mm. a couple of days after that New York Times story broke about him, I turned on Netflix to watch something and the big like welcome banner on my Netflix that day was like, congratulations, Aziz Ansari on the Emmys that you've won or Golden Globes or whatever. It wasn't as like, really Netflix? And then it gave me a moment of pause of like, wow, they either they don't care or they don't think enough of their customers care to be upset that they were featuring that. Uh, and that's neither also, of those things are awesome if they're true. Yeah, that's gross math. But it was it was, you know, a couple days after everyone that I knew had been talking about that story. Mm. And there it was, like on the big splash, you know, featured image spot at the top of the Netflix. I don't know if it's cynical or not. My sense of these things is generally a company will withstand as much pain as it affects their bottom line one way or the other. So if Mm -hmm. Netflix thinks it can make more money with this strategy, it will. It will stop the strategy at at the point in which they're starting to lose money Mm-hmm. By the other way, like if there's a boycott, which you know, I, I don't know how, what else would happen um, if Random House feels enough heat, you know, like uh, with uh, he who shall not be named in uh, Simon Schuster, right? right? right. Um, it got to the point where I think just from a bottom line math of how public sentiment was turning against you, was like, we got to get out of this thing. And I don't know if it has to be sort of a net zero or, you know, what at what price will the more, what premium will they pay for morality? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I tend not to have... Uh, a high anthropology, as my mom would say, about corporate actions in mm. this particular kind of thing. Um, it's a little bit easier, I think, in the agents. I mean, it's not a. It's it's kind of ironical. It's called they have more agency. They're an individual. You know, they can forego their own personal income. Whereas, I think the bureaucracy of something like a random house would have a much har- harder time doing mm-hmm. it. And maybe there's maybe something will happen. Um, maybe they will do something like, you know, the books are in print, we won't print more, or we won't, we're going to drop his new book, or something else um, might happen. Uh, But it'll be interesting to see Mm -hmm. what happens after the fact. Yeah, especially these two authors, I think, make an interesting case study, because both of their books have been on school reading lists, at least in the Richmond area. Like, I remember um, seeing 13 Reasons Why on school reading lists back when I was a bookseller, and um, hearing about friends, kids reading The Maze Runner. So this has trickled down also to what's hap- what's going to happen in classrooms and school sure. libraries. Um, I'm interested in that. We were so in it last week about just how this feels to be finding these things out and how tangly it is. But if you are um, I, like a librarian or an English teacher and you are also wrestling with what to do with this information, um, I would love to hear from you. We will we can talk about your feedback anonymously on the show. We won't, we won't out you about your thought process. But if you want to chew over that with us, please go ahead and shoot us an email um let's go hmm, where do you want to go from this you know a lot of great news on the agenda today <laughs> now that I'm, I, there's a, this is like a week that we needed uh, a hero but there was no hero no of the week heroes. that i could find well let's just do it then i think the next big story of the week is um barnes and noble um cutting staff and mm-hmm. is cutting staff in a particular way that i i said in the book right insider slack today i think this is the worst news i've seen about mm-hmm. Barnes and Noble since we started doing this. I don't know how you feel about it, but um, I think so. You've worked at a Barnes and Noble, so you can maybe speak to some, you know, I, I, I don't know how different things might be now, but like how the the stores are put together in terms of staffing, might you might be able to provide a little context. You're mm-hmm. basically this was this Monday? Yeah, this Monday, a round of company-wide layoffs, Barnes and Noble's cut lead cashiers, digital leads and other experienced workers. Um, this is a CNBC, or no, sorry, a Fortune byline. I'm looking at a post within a post. Um, that is true, but not the full story. So I'm going to link to the blog post here about a long time by a long time Barnes and Noble employee saying this is quite a bit different. Every store, every single Barnes and Noble location, told their full time employees they're gone. Every single mm-hmm. one. Every single full-time employee at every single Barnes & Noble location, 781 stores. Each store lost between three and seven people. 
Um, people, and these are people that have been there a long time, head cashiers, receiving managers, digital leads, the people who are solving Nook problems, which there are many. <laughs> the newsstand, the people responsible for distributing the magazines, and the bargain leads. So you know that part of the store where you can go get, you know, that cloth-bound Sherlock Holmes things for like eight bucks or whatever, or like three years ago, big bestseller for four bucks, those parts of things. A few of the largest stores were able to sh- spare their head cashiers and the receiving managers, but not that many. So why does that matter? Well, I mean, you can, there's the, the plain text reading is you get rid of your most experienced full-time employees. That's not great. Yeah. What do you, what do it's, you, so now, now step in as a former, um, uh, right, green apron. So, <laughs> right. So the way that the, um, the way that the stores were laid out and it has been like eight years since I was a bookseller, but I've got some friends who are still at Barnes and Noble is you have the store manager. And then under the store manager, you have a couple assistant store managers. Those folks are all full-time. They have benefits. Then you have a tier under the assistant store managers that are the leads. And that's what you were describing where that those are also full-time positions. Um, but each of those people is in charge of a particular area of the store and they report to one of the assistant store managers. So like an assistant store manager might oversee, um, cash wrap, the newsstand and bargain just for an example. And mm-hmm. so those three leads, there would be one per like one lead in charge of cash wrap, one lead in charge of newsstand. They don't spend all 40 hours of their week working on the newsstand, but they are the employee who's in charge of restocking the newsstand every week, keeping track of ordering that kind of thing. Um, the store that I was in had a children's lead, um, who was an incredible asset to the store. And um, I'm thinking about, I think that she is still there and I'm thinking about what that is for like a loss for the community to not have that person um, available there. But really um, folks who had been booksellers doing these particular specialized jobs in the store for quite a while and had really specialized and deep knowledge about them um, in some ways, you know, the lead cashier knows a lot about the store's technology and how the company is put together in terms of policies and how you handle customer service. But a children's lead, like that's the kind of the equivalent of being like a, you know, similar, not the same as being a children's librarian Mm. or um, a children's book blogger, like really deep knowledge, working with parents to recommend books to their kids. Um, So this is, it's a cost cutting measure of of functionally, we can save a lot of money if we don't have these full-time leads that we have to pay full-time salaries and benefits to. Um, It's, I think, you were saying offline, and I think it's correct, the kind of move that you only make when your only other alternative is to go out of business. Mm. Um, Because what will happen is these, you still have to have bodies in the store during business hours. And so they'll be replaced by um, part-time employees who very likely have less of that specialized knowledge and less experience. And then you're just in the vicious cycle downwards of a less positive experience for your customers (laughs) and and making less money. Um, This is, uh, this looks to me like sort of the first real flush before you circle the drain. I, I, I'm not in the gener. I don't know how to do generous readings of this. I guess if you're thinking about it in terms of they're not this this post I'm going to link to goes on to some real insider baseball and it's even insider baseball beyond like normal insider baseball. It'd be like how the baseballs are made, how they're <laughs> stitched together, levels of insider baseball, and some of the speculation. Um, but I will say that I think there's a there's a chance that they are trying to restructure their costs. Uh, in a way where, okay, let's get rid of the high expense things that have lower margins. Maybe there's a future of Barnes & Noble where they, you come in and you buy front list and bestsellers and that's it. You know, it's, it's the Hudson booksellers in the mall. And that's it. And, you know, you and I both know that the highest margins are on front list hardcovers, basically. Mm-hmm. And if that's what you buy and maybe they see and they look at their sales, if we got rid of all this other stuff or kept it on life support... Our business is much smaller, but it's sustainable. That could be happening. Um, and apparently some it was the case that they weren't going to be hiring new full-time people in these positions, and they were going to keep the current people until they left, uh, which, I don't know, that seems a weird half measure to me, but then they decided against that, and there's some surprise. There's a human cost to it and human pain that is you, you don't want to discount and miss and you don't want to but you also don't want to muddle it with the company's fortunes like because people are getting fired does not mean the business is naturally going away it also doesn't mean that it's not going away there there's some separation 
there. Um, because the thing that's a little bit confusing to me, and, and I, I'm not great at reading financial statements, and I think uh, you know companies most of the times obfuscate to their own benefit, is is there a core business in Barnes & Noble that's profitable? Or isn't there? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. And I don't know the answer to that. Um, and I think maybe Barnes & Noble either doesn't or that business model looks a lot different than what you and I understand a Barnes & Noble to look like at this point. Yeah, I agree that they, like, obviously they're trying to make some changes so that they can stay alive. Um, whether these changes actually help the business to be yeah. strong, I think is questionable. I don't I don't know. I think if there's a long-term future, it's something that looks very different. Um, yeah, I think so. That, and, that, and not just a like, oh, we're going to eliminate these positions, but almost a, you know, burn it to the ground and start over kind of rethinking. Yeah, I, I don't know enough about retail to, to know, except that maybe they found that, you know, these services and sidelines like, or these other parts of the business, they don't actually need them. It could be that. Uh which is not great for the people being laid off, fired, however you want to put it. But maybe they think there's a business in which, you know what we are? We are a dumb container for print books mm-hmm. and people to walk in and buy them. And we don't need experienced sales staff. We don't need knowledgeable people. We don't need really well-trained people because people are going to come in and they're going to browse books and, or, and buy what they've heard of. And everything else is kind of to make us feel good or to differentiate us from Amazon, which people, that's not what they're doing anyway. They're coming because we're print and we're physical. Everything that isn't just front list print and physical, we don't need. I mean, I could see that being I a mean, possible future, I guess. Except that, like, the vast majority, and I can't remember the numbers, but I knew it when I worked for Barnes & Noble, of the sales in any given year are from backlist. Like, well, maybe they keep the shelves. You know, you go wander the shelves back there by yourself, mm-hmm. you know? you don't need, We don't need yeah. a children's section or the bargains or the whatever, like... <laughs> It doesn't take that much labor to just like have a bunch of books on the shelf and a cashier. I mean, right? I don't know. It's, I'm not. Maybe I'm trying to rationalize the whole thing. Um, and I mean, I can see how they would get to that. Yeah. Conception of it. I think that's a really bad way to look at it. If that's what the, if that is the way that they're looking at it, I find that to be short sighted and a fundamental misunderstanding of what people do when they go yeah. into bookstores. Like you have a different threshold of expectation when you're in the Hudson News at LaGuardia. You know, like I'm. I don't expect to be getting personal recommendations there, but people walk into bookstores, whether they're Barnes and Noble stores or Indies, expecting to be able to do things like what I saw this book on NPR this morning. I think it has a blue cover. Maybe it's about cats and like someone can point them in the direction of that thing um, and decode the question they're asking. And people do like they wander in doing things like what our, our listeners do when they send us um, the gift idea questions. Like I'm shopping for my mom. I'm in the bookstore because my mom likes books. I don't know which books to get her. Wandering around feels intimidating or overwhelming, or I don't know where to start. But here is a human that I can say, my mom likes books about dogs and travel. What should I do? And like a, a decent bookseller, even if they don't have a personal favorite book about dogs and travel, can like point you to something that will satisfy that request. You're so right. The, like, Except just, that is that enough people? Like, well, is that the core does, business or not? Like, maybe they're looking at Amazon's bookstores. Like, you could see a future of Barnes and Noble. It looks much more like an Amazon bookstore. It's a lot of front yeah, list. You got maybe, stuff on there, I and think, it's just hourly workers. You know, checking I think you out. then though that Barnes and Noble would be. Uh, having to go after a different kind of customer. Like, yeah, do you, are you willing to give up the customers that you have who are looking for this kind of interaction with a bookseller? Um, like if all of them went away, would you then be trying to attract the customers that are cool with the Amazon bookstore where you just wander in and it is front list bestsellers that are faced out and you can grab what you need and it's not that like deep yeah, interaction. I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, in this model, I mean, I'm taking it to sort of logic, uh, reducto ad absurdum is like, we're basically just like a shelf where people can buy books off of. Maybe, maybe there's enough durability or a, there's a, there's a, there's a iron core of people who just will come in and buy books that if you strip away a lot of the expense to, to support the people that aren't that, mm-hmm. that maybe there's enough there. It's, it's not big, but sustainable and you have a business. Again, it's again. This is the kind of thing you do unless you have no other options, and this is a bad thing. So my guess is their vision of the company is bad mm-hmm. uh, compared to how you know the our um, uh, rose-colored 
fuzzy memories of the Plaza Barnes and Noble in Kansas right. City, that that stuff is gone or it looks yeah, like to be going those are away. Long gone. And what will have a big B ampersand N on it in the future if there's a business looking at the actions they're taking? Well, it certainly isn't going to be more customer service. Uh, it certainly isn't going to be fuller service. So if you look down the path of less service, like what's left, it's just a, a big box mm-hmm. um, with a bunch of books in it. And maybe that's what they say, you know what? Independent bookstores, they get the full customer, the full, the full service customers. Amazon gets the people that won't walk into bookstores, but there is a segment of the book buying public that likes to walk into a bookstore, walk around, look at the front list and buy it right then. And those are our customers and only those are our customers. And, and that's our future. I, I don't like it, but I can certainly see that as a logic. Um, yeah, I can see how they might try it. Yeah. I don't think they would succeed there. And maybe you do something you don't think is succeed because the stuff you other things the other choices you have you know aren't going to succeed. So <laughs> right. That's the right. thing that like might maybe, not fail. Exactly. Like maybe they're in the game now yeah. of like we have to show our um, stockholders, shareholders that we're attempting to save things, and mm-hmm. all of the options are terrible, and this is the least terrible of the bad ideas. It's totally uh, possible. Uh, the other thing sometimes companies do when they're trying to sell themselves or go private is to cut costs. So they can get a loan, or they can get a, they can acquire it at a cheaper price because the sales and everything goes down. It could be that they're reducing the size of the company, both in terms of overhead and in terms of still stores, um, so that it's you can buy out existing shareholders and go private, or get acquired by a holding company or something else like that, where you know you shrink so that you can move. Um, mm-hmm. That also could happen, and you build somehow you keep the most profitable stores you close a lot there's a lot of pain involved but you are evolving the company rather than just stripping it down to the bare parts or watching it slowly bleed out or quickly bleed bleed out as a thing making people have wondered i wonder what you think about this about a tipping point for barnes and noble um you know is there a point of no return um a tipping point for amazon's strength um got into a little bit of not not a disagreement but a conversation on twitter the other day with some people about asking about book right and amazon affiliate revenue so on and so forth but you know w- what would happen when barnes and noble goes away i think it's something that everyone's been afraid of in the book mm-hmm. publishing industry um I, I it looks like we might find out so there's that story anything else you wanted to say about that no i think I think I'm moving personally from it's interesting to watch Barnes and Noble move and attempt to figure things out to like now it we're I feel like we're on not maybe not immediately on like death watch but it's less interesting and more like oh yeah right <laughs> you know um I'm not just an interested bystander at this point I'll have a lot of questions about yeah. um, the choices that they make but it's uh discouraging I think to see it go in this direction apparently their holiday sales were abysmal I yeah mean, I, I mean that's another thing that went on is like they had they had a bad bad quarter um, for the holiday sales. So there's that. I guess we could kind of pivot to this story um, about 74 new independent mm. bookstores opening last year. Um, to my eternal consternation, the American <laughs> Booksellers Association gives you just enough information to be interested, but not enough information to know what the hell's going on. Um, <laughs> so the American Booksellers, this is I'm reading from their press release, the, in 2017, the American Booksellers Association op- welcomed 74 new indie bookstores that opened for business in 33 states and the District of Columbia. The new stores include a feminist bookstore, a children's bookstore, and 10 branches or satellites of existing businesses. In addition, 22 established ABA member stores were bought by new owners. They do not say how many closed. Um, they do not say really anything else. Um, in working on the annotated episode about the resilience, the dead, ca- or not dead cat balance, that's the wrong metaphor, but the, 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 the dip from the bottom and modest growth over the last few years of independent bookstores, one thing I learned is they don't report, you may have noticed, how many closed um, in 2017, mm-hmm. which I guess... You know, it's their PR, puff piece, whatever, but it doesn't give you any real sense. I think from my back of the envelope math, um, this is actually a slowdown in both the percentages, but also in the raw number of stores. Over the last couple of years, there's 100 plus new mm-hmm. stores opening. Um, I, we don't know what the net gain. It could be a net loss. There could have been 75 stores closing. We're down one. We don't know, unfortunately. Um, they stopped in the middle of the plunge, I think in 2011, maybe 2010, they stopped reporting the total number of member stores (laughs) um, because that's how you deal with bad news. You just don't say it. 
because then it, no one notices, but they stopped well, doing then, that. Well, what, what, then how, you can't write your headlines about how print is resurgent and everything is fine. Yeah. yeah. So without knowing the net gain or loss, it's hard to know what to make of this. I guess it's not zero. Um, but I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about the, is it? Do, can we take anything from this number at all? <laughs> no, I think that it's a net. I feel like, and I will have to go back and dig now, but I feel like we, I did see numbers about overall changes in independent book selling, but I can't remember when I saw that or where I feel like this is a net gain. Um, and I, it does seem also like a, slower it's a smaller number of new stores 74 still seems like a lot um, mm-hmm. but one of the conversations that we had uh, just on our staff slack earlier today was a, about real curiosity about where these stores are yes opening um and our sort of i think shared guess all of us is that you would see them clustering around the same kinds of neighborhoods where like we saw that map about little free libraries that affluent neighborhoods that you know, either already have one independent bookstore or are ripe to have one because mm-hmm. of the kinds of people and the socioeconomic status of folks who live there get independent bookstores. But this is not a, <laughs> it's not like necessarily, I would be shocked actually if it were some kind of uh, equalizing move in terms of access to books. Um, it's, I would guess that the folks who have access to these new stores already had access to right. like a yeah. great public library or another independent bookstore or a shopping you know center down the street with a Barnes and Noble. Uh, it's it would be really interesting I think that's a, a question I have a, a big question mark about is to see where new independent bookstores pop up on the map mm-hmm. and what kind of neighborhoods and what that does for like does this increase access or does it increase sort of the gap between people who have access and people who don't um, to books and reading. Yeah, it could increase uh, raw numbers of access but widen the disparity. Um, mm-hmm. I think that Kelly and I were talking in our Slack about how we'd like to see kind of a analysis of the zip codes in which the in, it, exi- all independent bookstores are, the median income of the people who live in those zip codes or counties or neighborhoods or however else you want to break it down compared to the American you know, median or average or whatever statistical term you want to use that seems relevant. Um, because just looking at the, the places I know about in this list of new stores, I'm, I see two in San Francisco. I see st- a bunch of college town ones. I see Books Are Magic in, in Smith Street in Brooklyn, New York, my old neighborhood, which is fabulously expensive these days. I see Kennebunkport, Maine, which mm-hmm. is, you know, where the Bush family compound is. is a, <laughs> you know, Washington, D.C., Evanston, Illinois. And again, these are just the ones I know. And I don't think it comes as a surprise to anyone. And I don't know that it's bad necessarily that independent bookstores are in the wealthy places. But in the conversation we have, you know, sort of the eternal conversation about the place of independent bookstores in the reading health of the nation, that's something that isn't talked about enough. Uh, if only because we don't know the numbers. I would love yeah, to be wrong. I would love this, to be wrong like, about this. I don't right, think I am, but I'd love to be wrong. Yeah, there's an ongoing thing that we've sort of talked about here from the very beginning is that like what's good for yeah. books is not necessarily the same thing as what's good for readers. And certainly having a new independent bookstore in your neighborhood is good for readers, but what the group of readers it's good for how representative they are of all readers or what that really does to the landscape of being a reader and having access to things is a big open question for me. But And and access um, to pay full price for frontlist hardcovers is, uh, I'm not sure what kind of access that is, to be perfectly honest Mm -hmm. with you. Like, yeah, but uh, I I don't know. I I don't know. But it it, it does connect to the Barnes & Noble versus Amazon thing because... we don't know. I mean, maybe I'm in the mood of being okay with uncertainty or dwelling with the uncertainty coming out of the Mies 2 stuff we talked about last week, but I don't have the right answer to what Mm-mm. Amazon's dominance means. Like, I know, you know, basically the conversation I was having on Twitter came out of, you know, Book Riot leaks to Amazon for affiliate revenue, and we do very well there. I mean, it's a big part of our business, um, you know, to put it in human terms, like four or five staff people get paid out of that number alone. And so for us to say link to Barnes & Noble or IndieBound because of the goodness of our hearts, well, we got to let people go, which I don't, I don't think people put it quite into those terms. But there is a larger conversation about what Amazon has added and what's taken away. Um, on, in the net leisure, I feel at this point, it doesn't have to be this way forever, Amazon's been a net plus. 
um, for a variety of reasons. We could go into it, some of the accessibility, independent, uh, in, uh, self-publishing, digital reading, audiobooks, the way they push the ball forward there and a lot of mm-hmm. industry to come up. I think there's a lot of positive things there. I don't love... Barnes and Noble going out of business, but remember, twenty years ago, people were wringing their hands about Barnes and Noble. Well, they were Fox Books, and you got mail. So I don't yeah, know where to be it, about this. I think it's pretty similar to um, um, remember when we both read Merchants of Culture yes, about right. the evolution of the publishing industry. That, like, you know, when the Codex was invented, people were like, <laughs> "But what about the scrolls?" Right. And when paperbacks came out, it was like, "But what about hardcovers?" There's this, and this is not unique to publishing. Mm. Um, Clive Johnson does a really nice job of it in Smarter Than You Think, Thompson. talking about Thompson, Thompson yep. right? Clive Thompson um, in Smarter Than You Think, talking about this resistance that we have to new technologies and the way that we resist or or ideas, and we resist them by saying like, "Well, but the thing that we've had for a while now has stood the test of time." And I think that. We, people do the same things about Amazon, Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores like Amazon was big and scary when it came out. But you're right. Barnes & Noble was big and scary before that. And before there were a bunch of independent bookstores, they were selling books in department stores. You know, like Gone with the Wind was sold in department stores. Yeah. Like you could walk into Dillard's <laughs> and or the equivalent and buy a book and they were probably threatened by the rise of independent bookstores. It's just this evolution that I think mm-hmm. forgets that – or kind of erases that there are always customers for different sort of levels of a thing. And people are not always just one customer. Like there are customers that exclusively want what Amazon has to provide. There are customers that exclusively want what indie bookstores have to provide. But then there are people who sometimes they want Amazon and sometimes they want indie bookstores. And that sort of diversity of offerings in the marketplace, I think is good for books and for readers. But it's um, it, it often gets boiled down to like, if we don't have independent bookstores, we are at a net loss. If we don't have Barnes and Noble, we are at a net loss. And I'm, I'm not sure that that's true, um, in the sort of overall health of being a person who cares about books. I'm I'm not, I'm also not defending a possible future in which Amazon is the book selling. I don't think either of us are saying that too. Like we just don't know where we are enough because we don't know what the possible future looks like. There is a, there is a world in which, you know, Amazon. I mean, they already sell sixty percent of print books online and ninety percent of ebooks online. So, in, in a way, the future is already here when it comes to online book sales. But there's a way in which they're they're a pretty decent steward of that. There's a way in which they aren't, and you know, antitrust things start to get involved. I think one player, um, a, a one player retail, you know, that has some crazy percentage of the book set. Book retail business mm-hmm. is not good for anyone. Right. Yeah. Um, the place I kind of land with sort of BookRite's own affiliate sales is like, it's good for us. I don't know that it's good or bad for publishing at large, but here's the thing. PRH st- sells on Amazon. They're a multi-billion dollar publishing conglomerate does 50% of US trade sales. If they are in bed with Amazon, how how could... It seems weird for, for to be like, well, that... I, I, I'm doing something wrong for publishing that they themselves are doing. Like, I know what's better for publishing than PRH does. It seems very weird to me to make that kind of argument. <laughs> um, maybe once we get squawking from big five publishers, even middle, you know, source books or other, you know, good middle-sized publishers, like we can't, Amazon is the devil and we cannot sell our books there anymore because our, we will go out of business. Maybe then that will, I don't, I'm just not hearing that yet. It causes them pain. They don't like doing it. But they're doing it. Um, And I just don't know how to square the circle of, I know what's better for the publishing industry than the publishing industry does. That just seems nonsensical to me. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there's that. Let us know. Podcast at bookriot.com, what you guys are thinking about too. I'd like to hear. Yeah. Before we get into a couple more stories, we want to mention that we have a fun giveaway happening at Book Riot. We're giving away $500 worth of penguin cloth bound classics Mm. that were, and these are beautiful. They were designed by Coraline Bickford Smith. It includes, you know, some fan favorites like Dickens, George Eliot, Mary Shelley, and Tolstoy. The giveaway is open until March 13th. So you have almost a month to enter. Go to it says Instagram.com slash book riot. Well, but it's I a little think... confusing. I'll put a link in the show notes. So I'll take you right to the post. <laughs> ah, got it. Okay, yes. Yeah. There will be a link in the show notes here. Um, but Instagram.com slash book riot to enter. The giveaway post is sticky at the top of our profile there yeah. on Instagram. So five hundred dollars of penguin cloth bound classics oh, so pretty. could be yours. They are gorgeous. Go 
go and do that. Um, you want to talk about schools for a minute? Well, real quick, while we're talking about our own stuff, we, oh, yes. we I don't think we've talked about it on the show before, but we have a new um, book. Right has a new "When in Romance" podcast up, and you can go listen to it. And it got us. It's every two weeks talking about romance. Um, and we've got a couple of our contributors, have been longtime romance contributors to the site, big passionate readers. Um, we got a lot of good feedback already. You can mm-hmm. go find it when in romance. You can search at whatever your podcatcher of choice is, Apple Podcasts. But we also, I, you, I don't know if people listen to the show. No, we have a bunch of other podcasts. We do have Get Booked. And we have uh, all the books which Rebecca's on. But we have some other genre stuff that I'm not sure we've talked about that much. At least recently, we've got a mystery thriller one called Red or Dead. We've got a science fiction fantasy one uh, called uh, Oh SFF Yeah. Um, we've got a nonfiction one called For Real. We've got a YA podcast called Hey YA. So if you like podcasts and you like books. I, you know, I'm guessing if you're listening to this, this might not be uninteresting to you. You can get a little more specific about your, you know, your, uh, your, your flavors of books that you're interested in. Um, all the genre ones right now are every other week, and they're about you know the same format of this show. A couple of hosts, they talk about news, they do recommendations. Go check those out um, for your uh, late winter into spring listening needs. Yeah, you can check those out all together at bookriot.com slash listen. Yep. And I want to say, especially if you are a romance reader, you will dig when in romance. But if you have been thinking about mm. being a romance reader, or wondering what the big deal is about romance, or how to dip your toe in, we're getting great feedback that this is yeah. a really good way for folks to sort of get an entree into what the genre is. So if that's just been, you know, sort of noodling around for a little bit, you want to check out romance. Um, our co our host there, Jess Pride and uh, Trisha Brown are doing an awesome job. So give that a shot. Be brave. Read a new genre this year. Yeah. It'll be good for you. A couple quick school related yeah. stories. Um, and both of these are, are in that vein of like just things to know that are happening. Mm. Um, Mercedes Liriano Clark, who's an English teacher at a high school in the Bronx, has been told by her principal that she cannot teach the Harlem Renaissance because she isn't a social studies teacher. Um, She was teaching it in the context of right now, Black History Month. And uh, we've got coverage on Book Riot about it written by Rebecca Renner, who's noting that for many people, an English class is the only place you learn about the Harlem Renaissance especially when you're talking about American literature and you're talking about Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston. Um, it's uh, Certainly you could talk about the Harlem Renaissance in a social studies class, and you could, but the notion that it should be confined to uh, social studies and not discussed in an arts or humanities class is... Um, does not follow in the logic, um, especially when you're talking about uh, a community as diverse as New York City and as diverse as the Bronx is trying to have a teacher not address black history in some fashion is really mind boggling. So you can read more about that story. And um, as, as of the time that we had the coverage on the site, there wasn't actually much information about mm. like what the reasons were. This reason was like, well, you're not a social studies teacher. So um, that is an ongoing development. Perhaps more interesting. I, I need I think, 30 seconds of rage. I have to do 30. I mean, look, I did my master's thesis on W.B. Du Bois and, you know, I, I, mm-hmm. I took class on the Harlem Renaissance, taught class on the Harlem Renaissance as a literary context. I don't, this makes like my, I, I'm looking at the words and I understand the words but uh, there's some piece of this that I do not get. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe there is some sort of contractual thing that things are different, classified for different reasons. But on first blush, this seems uh, obtuse is, is too kind. It's, it, it's like, it's idiotic. Mm-hmm. It's not even... There's it's no not even mal- It's not even malicious in, or, or backwards in the, in the vein of the censorship stuff, right? Like, it's almost, I don't know if it's better or worse, but it almost feels like there's a, a short circuit in some process about this. Um, It's one of those things where like a manager says, well, you can't because you can't. And they think that it's supposed to like that, that should suffice. Like, um, I was just talking offline this morning with a friend totally unrelated to publishing, but who's dealing with something kind of like this in his job. And I was saying like, well, you know, I've had some success being like, I'll, I will be happy to abide by, all of your policies, but right. can you please show me where this is a policy? Yeah, right. Um, and, External principle. And, yeah, right. And so, right. And this is, and uh, that's a thing that I say when I think that someone from a, like another company mm. is trying to jerk me around. And 
Uh, and it works typically because you can smell the rat and you know that they don't actually have a policy. And so you make them produce the fact that they have no policy to show you. Um, and I think that that's what this is. Like, th- this is not written down somewhere that only social studies teachers can talk about the Harlem Renaissance. Um, so I want to know, like, how did the principal get word of it? Did someone complain or does he just not like it? What's going on here? Did the teacher say something that was perceived as political? And they were like, you know what? We're just going to pretend that this is a real reason. But there's no <laughs> no, capital I, there's no capital r real reason going on here yeah i mean mo- i mean we're english people here book people here but i think writ large the harlem Renaissance is prominently no- primarily known as a literary movement i guess you know jacob mm-hmm. lawrence and painting and you've got music of course and jazz but like as an artistic movement literature led the way so i i, I don't i don't get it um this is a story i'm following um if i don't hear more i, I might make a phone call to someone in new york <laughs> who, who who knows something because I, I i just don't get it uh i really don't it, you know i know in, in big school systems there's a lot of classifications for things this is not my generous reading this is the there might be extenuating circumstances that are also dumb but they also mm-hmm. might actually be caught of codified idiocy, um, yeah. which is the Harlem Renaissance is classified in their rubric as a social science. And you cannot, therefore, I mean, it might be that there is a policy that is also mm-hmm. dumb and it's not just this particular person being dumb, which is, a, there still needs to be action taken, but yeah, that's different it, to me than like one random person sort of arbitrarily cracking the whip for reasons we don't understand. Yeah, there's... Um and there's an investigation ongoing now because there's a link in Rebecca's yeah. piece on the site over to an NBC New York um, post about how um, Mercedes Liriano Clark, the teacher, refused to stop her lessons about the Harlem Renaissance. And um, when, despite the principal's orders, she refused to stop and said, Black history will continue in my classroom every day. Um, so the New York City Department of Education has begun an investigation into allegations about what's going on here, about um, African-American history yeah. as part of the curriculum and how that should be featured and highlighted. And um, act- activists are calling on the city for more anti-bias training in order to make real change occur. So the students have protested as well, rallying behind this teacher. But it, it def- like there's also something that's like not being said here. The story does yeah. feel in- incomplete right. in some way. Um, and an a, like, interesting, because of one of the details of it, note, um, a school district in Minnesota has decided to pull To Kill a Mockingbird and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn from its curriculum. Um, we have seen these two titles be pulled from mm-hmm. countless curriculum, curricula, in, in the time that we've been doing this show. And um, their reason here is that the novel's use of racial slurs risked students being humiliated or marginalized. Um, we've seen that as well. Mm-hmm. We've talked in the past about um, like that this is a very difficult and ugly part of American history, that these novels present a way to explore you know, to explore that and that it it should be challenging and disturbing um, to have these conversations. This is the first time, however, that I have seen a local chapter of the NAACP support a move Mm -hmm. like this. Um, The move by the Duluth School District was supported by the NAACP with a president of the local chapter saying that the books were just hurtful and use hurtful language that has oppressed people for over 200 years and that there are better options to do the same, to have the same kinds of discussion um, without using language that is degrading to African-Americans. Of course, that move is criticized by the National Coalition Against Censorship, and they're going to sort of, I guess, argue it out in the court of public opinion about it. Um, And that representative from that group says that the classroom is where the history, use, and destructiveness of this language should be examined Hmm. and discussed. Um, Interesting to me to see, I don't know if this is a, uh, to use the sort of taxonomy we use with each other about all kinds of things. Is this idiosyncratic or is Mm. this indicative of a systemic shift? I think um, it's possible that we could see the beginning of of a systemic shift away from these novels that do use hurtful language. Um, In the past, I, and like historically I have been team talk about the really difficult thing. Um, But if members of the black community are saying they want to move away from that method of exploring America's racial history. I think that's something to listen to. And this is the first time that I've seen it um, come up this way in response to a school changing their list. Usually it's white people being like, you know, it just hurts our feelings. Um, And that's obviously not a good reason. But if it's coming from members of the black community, that shifts it for me. I I think I'm on board with team To Kill a Mockingbird. Keep it in the library if people want to read it, fine. 
but mm-hmm. as a part of the curriculum in English classes that and part of the goal of it is to talk about race relations, I, I think it's had its day. I mean, it's it's sixties years old. It's by a white mm-hmm. woman centering white people. Like if you're gonna talk about race in America, like I think that is not it's it's a museum piece of of a kind now. And I think there's so many other choices you could make that would be I don't know, more complicated, that they, they represent a, a better representation of our best understanding now, which To Kill a Mockingbird just can't. Adventures mm-hmm. are a couple of, a similar thing. I think they are part of literary history. And if you're teaching literary history, that might be interesting. But if you're arguing that you need To Kill a Mockingbird to talk about a race in America, that's on its face that doesn't pass the test. Like There's so many other books you could, you could pick. Um, I, I, I hadn't really thought about in those, quite those terms before. Mm-hmm. It's not just like whether or not it's offensive to which group, but whether it's useful, right. I think, is a completely different mm-hmm. rubric for understanding whether or not we should be we should put in the curriculum. I think the key piece here is it stays in the library. You don't have to get a special note for mom or dad. They're, they're not banning it, right? It's not one of those moves. Like, you can go read if you want to, fine. I'm sure if you wanted to read it for a part of a project for one of these people, but it's not codified in the curriculum. I think that's a different kind of mm-hmm. thing, especially if it's coming from the NWP, especially if the teachers are on board. Like, that's a decision that the system is making on behalf of the best interest of what the system believes itself to understand at that moment. And again, that, that same logic can be used in different other situations. But like, here they're actually th- talking about, like, is this the best use of what we want to do in a proactive way and talk about race. I think it's a fascinating argument. Mm-hmm. I think I'm on board with that. Uh, yeah, yeah. If I'm understanding it correctly. I think it's really interesting. And if it becomes the new argument against these books, I am so on board for that and yeah. so much more on board for it than for any concern about like white students' feelings no. about being pr- the, the, what, what the history of being white in America is. But the right, you, I think the point you make about the utility of these particular books in exploring race in America, not so much anymore. Like even no. if we get rid of To Kill a Mockingbird, take off To Kill a Mockingbird, take off Huck Finn, put Ta-Nehisi Coates on the reading yeah, list. Right. You know, like talk about or something even the that same is, period, you know, you put on um, uh, the Native Son. Their eyes were watching God. Yeah, yeah Native Son. Or any, any one of those. Like, Invisible you, Man, like there's not, we're not wanting for example. Yeah, those might, uh, if you read them, you might find that they're a little about race. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You'll see. Um, take it, check it out. That's our show for today. Thank you guys so much for listening. You can find show notes to this and all their podcasts, uh, episodes of the Book Ride Podcast at Book com slash listen. Shoot an email podcast at bookriot.com. Um, especially Barnes & Noble birdies are especially welcome to Chirp uh, this week. Um, thanks too much for our sponsor, Mr. Tender Squirrel by Carter Wilson for sponsoring this week's show. Go check out our Instagram pod, uh, Instagram giveaway. Uh, link in the show notes to that. And also, I'll put links into the other, the whole world, the whole ecosystem of genre Book Riot podcasts that you may or may not be interested in. Uh, I'll put links to those shows there, but also you can go to bookriot.com slash listen. As you're finding the show notes of this episode, you can see all those other things that look like podcasts. They are, in fact, podcasts. Rebecca, we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.